Those bad days are funny if they don't happen to us. But they're terrible when they happen to us. It's terrible when the bad day starts and all of a sudden you've gone to a regular doctor's appointment and you find out, hey, this is more serious than what you thought. And they start talking about terms and words and they use the big C word, whatever. It's a bad day when all of a sudden you get a phone call and that phone call is telling you about a loss, a loss of, you know, somebody distance has just lost their house in a fire. Bad day. It's a bad day when all of a sudden you find out that one of your family members has suddenly slipped away out of this life. Those are bad days. Those are bad days and they happen. And as unfortunate as it can be, our church has had too many of those bad days and too many families in the last year. It's been a year that we've done more funerals and more of you have been dealing with family losses than you can, than you can strike a match at. It's just, it's horrible. I say it not jokingly. I'm almost afraid to invite anybody to join our church. It's happening so often. But there is a reality that we need because, because death is a part of life. We need to deal with it. We need not run from it. It is a part of our life. We're all going to face it. And so there's a series that I've been putting off and putting off and putting off for the last two years because I never wanted to start it because it never felt like it's the right time to start it because somebody was going through this tragedy. Somebody lost a father. Somebody lost a loved one. And if I keep on putting it off, there's never a good time. But we need to revisit this biblical study of what about death and dying? What happens to us? What happens to our loved ones? What do we do to prepare for that? What happens when it happens? What do we do? And so I want to do the next few weeks just a very practical study, some more theological, some biblical preaching in the morning and the evening, do some more practical areas. But the first day today, I want to just focus on John 11. And just lay some foundation for our study and some encouraging thoughts and remind you that there was times in the Old Testament when walls came tumbling down. Boy, there was great rejoicing. Jericho fell and boy, they were excited. They celebrated. They were, they were so encouraged because the enemy had fallen. But when it's our own walls, when it's the walls of our marriage, the wall of our family, the wall of people around us, our finances, our health, our life, comes tumbling down. It's not, there's not as much rejoicing. And I'm going to take you through John 11, but let me just set this, the, the thoughts for us right off the bat. Is here's some realities from Scripture that we need to keep in mind. As we do this study, as we go through life this week, we need to remember that there are some important truths that we ought not to forget or we're going to get knocked down. Last week, in fact, we were gathered together and it was time where we were celebrating Lori's life and reflecting upon it. And while we were there in the family center, a gal came in that we hadn't seen for a number of years. Some of you know Jean. And uh, she had ministered for a number of years in a school down in, in uh, Lancaster. And during that time, and I'm talking 25, 30 years ago, we used to do camps, winter camps together, their church, our church. And one of those winter camps, we were up here over by Raresburg at a teen camp. And I remember taking the youth group there. And one of the afternoons, there was some free time, so we decided to play football. George Ashby was playing like his Green Bay hero, Bart Starr. And I was running out, you know, for a pass. And I remember catching the pass, and all of a sudden, I I was leveled. I was absolutely leveled. And I remember thinking, oh, am I, you know, what happened? And I looked up and here's Jean looking down at me. And Jean is a, is a you know, woman's coach, athlete, things like that. And she's just a sweet, sweet spirit. But boy, could she put a punch. 
she just wiped me out when she just tackled me. And she's looking down and says, Pastor Wayne, you okay? You okay? Are you, what day is it? Who's the president? She started asking me all these questions. And that's not the first time I've gotten knocked out. The other time I remember that I get, got really knocked out was I was in college and it was supposed to be one of the gym classes that was supposed to be one of those easy classes that you just take because you just, you know, kind of float through. And so I was floated through this one class and they did a variety of sports. And the one sport that they were doing at this time was wrestling. I don't have a clue about wrestling. I've told you about that. But I remember one guy taking me down on the mat and he flipped me, and I don't remember anything more than several hours later, I remember sitting in chapel going, to a friend of mine, I don't know where I'm at, I don't know what day it is, I went through class, and I have notes, but I was knocked out through that whole time. There are times in our life that we feel that way. We feel knocked out, and we're going through the motion, you're going to work, you're going through this, and you don't know how you're coping, but you're just kind of going through. We're not supposed to be knocked out. We're not supposed to be down and out. We're supposed to remain standing, firm in the faith. But that won't happen if we don't remember these truths. Truth number one is this. Truth number one, crises will happen. Crises will happen. Okay? I, I, I know this. I know a lot of people are saying, I heard it on the sports talk show. I heard some people saying just a couple weeks ago, they say, we can't wait until we get out of 2016. When we get out of 2016, oh, we'll stop all of these celebrity deaths and all these, these celebrity, these different people dying. Do you think it's going to stop in 2017? It's going to continue because it is appointed unto man once to die, and after that, the judgment. We know that life's crises will continue to happen. We know that they happen, unfortunately, to godly people. We know it's going to happen. The Scriptures makes it very clear. In John 11, we're going to see that illustrated in just a minute. It happens to godly people. We read in Scriptures, my brethren, these are born-again people, my brethren, James says, count it all joy, not if you fall into diverse temptations, when you do it. And he's warning the people who are in the dispersion or the diaspora, as he calls it, that they're going to face some difficulties. He, we, we read elsewhere. We read in 1 Corinthians 10 these words, there is no temptation to take in you, and it's the word trial, it's not temptation of sin. But there's, in this verse, it's the idea, no trial has taken you, but such as is common to man. It, they, they happen. The difficulties we have, the diseases, the loss of job, the financial, the car accidents, the sickness in the home, it happens, it has happened to others, you're not unique, it's common to man. He writes in 1 Peter, beloved, those who are, who are faithful believers, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened unto you, this is life. This is the way it goes. But rejoice in as much you are partakers with Christ in his sufferings. We read in John 16 where Jesus in, the sermon, in his last sermon to the disciples as he is wrapping up the Lord's Supper, he says, these things have I spoken unto you that you might have peace. In the world you shall have tribulation. You are going to have troubles, but be of good cheer. In other words, we can have cheer. We can have peace. We can go through the trials, but we need to remember that this isn't unique, we're not unique, trials will happen, difficulties will come, illnesses and accidents and death, it will happen. But why? Why is it going to happen? Several possible reasons in Scripture. I'm not going to exhaust them all, but here are some. It could be of decisions we have made that we have difficulties. Jonah is a clear example of making bad decisions, therefore he almost lost the life of everybody on that boat with him. And his trial of being in the depths of the sea for those several days because he made bad choices. That does happen. King David is pushed off the throne. There's a rebellion taking place. His own son Absalom is seeking his life. He has gone into the wilderness. 
in retreat and he is in pain and in agony that his own family, he's lost everything he's been working for for the last few generations. At the end of his 40 years on the throne, here it is almost losing it all. Why? Because he made a bad decision. He made a bad decision and there's consequences that come out of it and that is he had that adulterous affair with Bathsheba and as a result he tried to cover it up and he committed murder of somebody and he was warned that your own children will turn against you as a result. Bad decision, consequences and sometimes that happens. Sometimes it happens that we are like an Abraham. We are impatient with the promises of God. God told him that your wife Sarah will bear a child. You be patient. It will happen. He doubts that. He's pushing 100. She's pushing 90. It's not in their, in their genetics at this point that their body is indicating they aren't having any more children, but God said she would, even though she's past childbearing. But they get the plan between them. The wife comes up with it, Sarah does, and he agrees that they will surrogate you know, one of the handmaids, and she'll bear the child for and instead of Sarah bearing the child. And we all know what that means historically. Now we have the Arab world and we have the Jewish world, all because of that ancestry that came out of this. All these centuries of conflict because of impatience. Sometimes our trials are somewhat self-induced. Sometimes we have nothing to do with them. They're a satanic attack. Job is attacked. He is challenged. Satan says, God, I'm going to show you that Job isn't sincere, that he's just flighty in his faith. And God says, okay, I'll allow you to do certain things, but you cannot take his life. And so Satan attacks, takes his children's life, takes all of his, his property, he loses all of his cattle, his crops, everything. And at the end of it, Job remains faithful, but never hears why the attack came, that it came from Satan. We have in the New Testament, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, where Paul is writing, and he says, I have a messenger of Satan in the flesh. It has buffeted me. I've called to the Father to take it away three times. He has said no, but he says, it is Satan attacking me, and God is using it in a special way to help me out in my life. But it came and started with a satanic attack. Sometimes... It's bad choices of others. We had nothing to do with it. You had nothing to do with that guy pulling out in front of you, driving too fast on slippery roads, but you got the accident, you got the problems, it wasn't your fault. You had nothing to do with the faulty wiring that took place in your home or your business place that caused the fire. It didn't happen, but you've got the consequences. Sometimes bad choices happen. Acts chapter 27. Paul is there as a prisoner headed towards Rome, and they are, part, they are at a spot there for the season, the hurricane season is upon the Mediterranean Sea. But the captain who is guarding Paul, the captain of the, the other captain of the ship, they get together and they say, hey, it's fair sailing. The season of the hurricanes looks like it's not been, a, been coming in as soon as possible. Let's try to go, to the, go across the Mediterranean. Paul says, don't do it. He advises, don't do it. This is unwise. We should be patient. We should wait. We should just hang out for a while. But impatience takes over. And as a result, the captains make the decision. They start crossing the sea. They get caught in a Eurocladon, it says, in a huge hurricane. They're shipwrecked. Almost all of the 200, 250 people on board, almost all of them, they are, their lives are threatened, but they all make it to safety as a result of, P, of Paul's praying for them. But it wasn't Paul's fault. It wasn't Paul's decision. It was the impatience of other people that caused the problem. Does that ever happen to us? Yeah. That's a possibility. Sometimes the bottom line, God brings trials in our life. 
God allows them. John chapter 9 is one of the classic illustrations. This man is there. He's blind from birth. Jesus is walking by and his disciples ask the question, who sinned, this man or his parents? And as we mentioned in our Sunday school class, Jewish thinking at that time, any personal tragedy was done because of some personal sin in your life. That was just their negative fatalistic thinking. And Jesus responds to the disciples and he says, now wait a minute, you've got it wrong. This man did not sin, nor did his parents sin that caused this blindness. This is because of the glory of God, because God had planned this in this man's life so that at this moment in time, I can come by and Jesus is going to heal this man. It's going to be a tremendous witnessing opportunity to all of Jerusalem. This man, as a result of his cure, will come to know the Lord in faith, as well as his family will be affected. It'll be a tremendous testimony that God had planned that instance at that time to work out for something good because you are always good to me. God sometimes in the trials brings the trials in the life of godly people. In fact, in John chapter 11, it is the worst tragedy possible is the death of a loved one. And it happens to Jesus' closest family that he knows here on earth besides his own, his bestest of friends. We read about it in John 11. Now a certain man was sick named Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary and her sister Martha. This was the Mary that anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus Lazarus was sick. Therefore his sister sent unto him to Jesus, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. When Jesus heard that, here's his response. He gets, he gets the text from, from the sisters. He responds by saying to his disciples who are with him in another town, this sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God that the Son of God might be glorified thereby. So Jesus makes it very clear that this trial was one of God for the goodness of God to be displayed. Now here's the bottom line before we go any further. You and I cannot escape life's crises. They will happen. They are going to happen to different degrees at different times, but we're going to face them. When you and I face a crisis, it doesn't mean that we have necessarily done something wrong. Sure, should we examine our hearts to say, have I sinned? Is this a form of a fatherly, fatherly heavenly father chastisement. That is wise. That is only, only appropriate that we would examine our hearts and make sure things are right. But it doesn't mean that God is against you. Even if it was a hand of God chastening you, giving you a spank, if you would, a spiritual spanking, it is for your good. It is not that he hates you. It is not he is against you. It is that he is for you. And the bottom line is this. Whether the trial is our fault, whether the trial is from Satan, whether the trial comes from God, whatever the reason, we still have to respond the same. We have to give God glory and remain faithful to him. So here's our lessons that we want to be working with. We said, number one, life's crises will happen. Number two, life's crises happen to godly people. Number three, shown out of this text, life's crises often create immediate confusion. I want you to see in John chapter 11, verse 21, and then another passage. It is, the story goes on that Jesus gets the message that Lazarus is sick. He delays a couple days. He doesn't go right away. Sisters think he would go, but he doesn't. He delays a couple days, and then when he gets there, he arrives, and it is the funerals taking place. It is the situation where the people are all gathered. And when Jesus shows up, 
there's going to be a variety of different responses. The interesting is this. I'm going to jump down to verse 18. Bethany was nigh from Jerusalem, about 15 furlongs, and many of the Jews came to Martha and Mary to comfort them concerning their brother. Then Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was now coming into town, went to meet him, but Mary sat still in the house. Then said Martha unto Jesus, now watch what she says in verse 21, Lord, if you had been here, my brother had not died. But I know that even right now, whatsoever you will ask of God, God will give it to you. He has a conversation with her. At the end of the conversation, she calls Mary her sister. Let's jump down further in the story. Okay, when, when it goes on, it says in verse 30, now when Jesus was, yeah, was not yet come to town, but was in the place where Martha met him, the Jews then, which were with her in the house, they comforted her, they saw her, that all of a sudden she got up hastily, went out, and they followed her saying, oh, she's going to the grave to weep. Then when Mary was come where Jesus was and saw him, she fell down at his feet saying, the exact same thing her sister did. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. See what you have here. He's got to keep in mind, they sent the message. They assumed he was going to respond right away. He didn't. They mentioned in the message, this is the one you really love. And they, they thought that would prompt it. It didn't. But when he arrived, after he delayed a couple days, the sisters come and ask him the same question. Or make the same statement, I should say. They say, if you had been here, it wouldn't have happened. It's almost as if, where were you? Where were you, Jesus, in the middle of this moment? Maybe it's as if, surely you would have not let this happen. He, you surely would cure. In fact, they even say, you know, that you need to cure him right now. Now everything's going to be okay. But they, they have a doubt. They're, they're confused. Like, where is God in this moment? You know, what's going on, God? And surely, surely you would have done something if, if you could have been closer, as if Jesus could not deal with anything long distance. Now, listen, we live in a day that's phenomenal for long distance compared to people years ago. People years ago, if their kids moved a long distance, they didn't see them, they didn't talk to them. Generations ago, they would get a letter once a year. We live in a time where we have so much more communication, and it's so close. But back in those days, I can understand them thinking, well, Jesus, you're not nearby, you're not close by. Did you get our message? And Jesus, you know, hurry up here because you've got to be here to do something. Jesus can do a miracle long distance, can he not? Did he not do long distance miracles? There was a couple times, Jairus' daughter, she's, you know, she's going to be okay, even though they were a long distance off. But they're confused. These people who loved him, who sat at his feet, these people who's, who were his closest earthly friends besides his disciples, they have some confusion. They have some difficulties at this moment. Have you ever been there? Have you ever had a crisis happen? You start questioning God, like, what are you doing, Lord? You know, do you know what's going on? If, if, if only you had, it wouldn't have been this way. I want to point out something. This is not the first time Martha had this issue. In a moment of a crisis where she questions God and what God is doing. Do you remember just weeks before this, she is serving Jesus at her house. And her crisis at that moment is not an illness. It has to do with ingredients. It is not some, some disease. It has to do with kitchen work. 
She is so overworked, she has a personal crisis. Her personal crisis is almost like an emotional breakdown with the pots and the pans. She comes storming out because her sister, Mary, is sitting at the feet of Jesus and not doing the job with her, not serving. Oh, by the way, let me remind you, my sister left me, she says. In other words, Mary did give her a hand. Mary was helping in the kitchen, but Mary chose the more important thing to go and sit at the feet of Jesus. Maybe Mary said, you know, one course is enough. We don't, have to, we don't have to frost the cake. We don't have to do the, you know, the little sprinkles. It's not that important. He just, they're just going to eat it. You know, we, can just, we don't have to do all the, the fancy stuff. Whatever it may be, Martha was having a crisis. And when she comes walking out of that kitchen, I get the impression she storms up to Jesus. And she says it this way, don't you care about me? Lord, don't you care that my sister hath left me? Do you ever have those momentary crises? Like, Lord, Lord, what's going on? I'm the only one going through this. Jesus, where are you? By the way, they are not the only people who have those momentary crises where they all of a sudden question what God was doing. Jesus is sound asleep in the bottom of the boat. The disciples are with him. They're crossing the Red Sea. This storm arises and they fear the fishermen, fear they're going to die. When they wake Jesus up at the bottom of the boat, their question is, don't you care that we perish? Do we ever think that way about God? Don't you care? Where are you? Let me, let me rephrase this. You know, when crises happen, there is the possibility of immediate confusion. There is like, God, I don't understand. God, my faith is shaken to the core. That doesn't mean you're bad. It doesn't mean that you're terrible. It doesn't mean that God is going to discount you and say, oh, you questioned me, therefore that's it. I'm done with you. Don't, don't feel that way. Momentary initial initial, uh, momentary confusion is is a common response by individuals. Don't belittle others. Don't jump on the bandwagon and say, "Oh, if you were if you were a person of faith, you shouldn't have any kind of questioning." Like, what if that does happen? And Jesus was gracious and kind and sympathetic and dealt with it. Now, if it continues that confusion, then we have more of an issue. But the initial response to the loss of the job, to, to, you know, okay, we got to repeat an entire grade. Oh, we've got this car accident. We just found out that the furnace has given up the ghost for winter. Okay, those crises, at times you just go, Lord, I, I don't understand. Whatever the crisis, whatever level it is, but especially the big one, the big level, initially, immediate, you know, they have that immediate confusion, that's normal. Let me give you another reality out of this, is when those crises strike, the big ones especially, they have a way of helping us to see what's really important in life. Man, do they bring us back to reality. Here's a conversation. I want to read it to you because we're going to reference. Let me read the conversation that Jesus has with Martha. With Martha, we're in verse 20. Then Martha, as soon as she heard that the Lord was coming, went and met him, but Mary sat still in the house. Martha says to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now, whatsoever you will ask of God, God will give it to you. Jesus said unto her, your brother shall rise again. She said, I know. He shall rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believes in me, though he were dead, yet he will live. And whosoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She says, yes, Lord. 
I believe that thou art the Christ, the Son of God, which should come into the world. And when she said so, she went her way and called Mary, her sister, secretly, saying, The Master has come and calls for you. And as soon as she heard that, Mary rose quickly and came out. And that's when the Jews said, Oh, she's headed for the grave. And it's not. She's headed for Jesus. What's really important, it's not expanded upon, but it's there in the text. Martha doesn't say a word about cooking. The only other two times she shows up in the text, she's busy making a meal for Jesus. One, when in John chapter 11, one at the last week, the last weekend Jesus visits prior to his death, he comes to their place and it says that she is making the meal and they're at the home of Simon the leper. Every other time we read about Martha in scripture, she's busy with a meal, not now. The crisis has caught her attention to realize what's really important in life. Oh, by the way, is food important? Right about now, your stomachs are saying, it's really important. So don't show us any pictures about food right about now. And it's an important thing. We understand that. But are there some things in life that are far more important than what we eat, what we drink, what we put on? Oh, is it important the way the car looks with you know, all the salt on the road? Yeah, yeah. It's good to at least have the windshield clean so you can see out of it. That's important. Is it important that we dress appropriately? Yeah, yeah, we know that. Is it important that the house gets cleaned once a year? Okay. Or we do laundry at least every other year? Is that important? Okay. Those things are important. Yes, they are. But when we have crises, they have a way of making a stop and say, you know, the important things aren't things. The important things in life are not things. Let me, let me see if I can rephrase this. By what your kids see in your life, what do they know is the values, the most important values? Do they look at your life and they say, wait a minute, the most important thing must be money. The most important thing must be God. The most important must be family. The most important thing must be the vehicle. The most important thing must be, you know, shoes. The most important thing must be whatever. What do they learn by your example? What have you relayed to your family as important issues? Do they realize, do they know that they are an important value in your life? More than a scratch on the coffee table? More than a grade? Do they know that they are the important value? Do they realize that? It is so easy for all of us and any of us that we get busy, 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 so busy, but all of a sudden when the crisis hits, it brings us back to the reality that relationships are the key. A relationship first and foremost with the Lord God, a relationship with one another, which fits the biblical commands that say, what are the greatest of commands? Love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, thy soul, thy mind, thy strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. So we have that reality that God sometimes needs to put us in school to call, ring the bell and call us in from recess to say, here's the right priority. If you and I maintain those right priorities, the crises come, it's not such a shock. It helps us to maintain and without regrets. Number five. Number five idea that we have out of this text is this. And tonight I'm going to expand a whole lot more. Very, very practical. But let me continue with this. Number five. The crises are used of God. They are used of God. Let me set the scene where Jesus is dealing with these people and he's going to show them something that they weren't thinking of when it happened. Our pastor and I were talking this past week. Um, some of you are aware, some of you don't know, that there was a period of time a few years back that we were both working for our doctorate. And I longer than him. 
we, I started the school. I remember the first day going into class in the doctoral training, and they said, why are you here? Why are you taking classes? And they were going around the 20-some the, the guys in the class that were working on their doctoral uh, work, and they asked them. And some were giving the, the you know, answers, you know, that were really, really, you know, admirable answers. And I was just cocky. <laughs> Surprise, right? I was, I was cocky, and, and uh, they came around, and they said, so what are you doing? And I said, I'm here for a degree. And he said, what? And I said, I'm here to get the degree. I want the degree, and here was my thought at that time. I want a degree so that when I sense that the time is to finish up here, I could go into teaching. And you have to have a degree to be teaching more than what I had or have now. And so I wanted to get a degree so I would have that opportunity to teach, especially in retirement years, that I'd be able to be a teacher somewhere, someplace. And um, this, the end of the story is this, that we went for several years. I didn't push as hard and fast as I should have because I let other things that were more important take, take precedent. That was you. And you know, ministering here, which was appropriate. And so Pastor Art and I, we did all the schoolwork, but we never finished the final project because the school closed before we finished it up. And so people have asked me since then, people I've gone to school with, they said, are you really disappointed you didn't get your degree? Not a bit. Not a bit. After all that time of going an extra eight years to school for the degree and not getting it, I'm not sad about it at all. Because the values changed in the course of the time that said, you know what I got out of it? I got training. I got some challenges in those classes that made me rethink a whole lot of different ideas that I had. How to minister better, how to study better, how to uh, preach a, a different way of preaching. And so for me, the benefit wasn't what I was looking for. I was looking for just this one thing. Let's get it over with. Just give me the diploma. You know, I'll pay you the money. Give it to me. I'll walk out of here. That's not what was, what was in mind. What was in mind through the Lord's leading was to get some extra training, to get some challenges, to be put down in classes in a way that would be humbling in order to improve. And God had a different plan. And at the end of the day, after it's all done, I don't regret it at all. I don't, I don't, I don't need the degree. I had the training. Isn't that the way God often works in our life? That God puts us in a trial. He puts us in a situation. Let's get it done. Let's take care of it. But God has this whole other plan here that he wants to work some good. And it, sometimes it takes us staying in the lesson, staying in the school longer than what we anticipated to get the real lessons, the most beneficial lessons. I go through scripture and I find several lessons that God says, here's why I give you trials. Here's why they're in your life. I give you some of them so I can draw you closer to me so that you don't walk away from me, become more reliant upon me, that you, you, you hug me, you, you, you uh, harbor right up next to me in the, in the safeness that I can provide, that you cling to me a whole lot more than what you did in the past. So I'm going to show you trials that they show your weakness so that you rely more upon me. We read in Scripture that they happen so as to build us in the faith. He talks about they follow that we should count it all joy knowing that the trial works maturity. The word patience is maturity. Is that idea of building up over a period of time that you may be perfect is the maturity, excuse me, and entire wanting nothing. He says, Paul writes, he says, in my life I had trials. One of the reasons God gave me the trials is I was getting too proud. I was getting proud that I could write scripture. I was getting proud that I wrote epistles. And God sent these trials just to give me some humility humility in my life to keep me from the sin of pride. We know that in 2 Corinthians, he says, sometimes I give you trials to prepare you to minister
minister to other people. You've got financial problems. Why? So that you can minister to people in that area. You've gone through some great loss. Why? You can minister to others who go through a loss. You've all of a sudden had some disease, some handicap situation arise. Why? You can minister. And I'm preparing you for that. And I'm putting you in a school that is totally different. There's another important trial that we talked about just when we went through the book of Philippians over the holidays. That God gives trials like Paul sitting in prison. And he writes, he says, they have happened for the furtherance of the gospel. What opportunities we get to witness in a trial during a difficult time like never before. We get to witness to those doctors, those nurses who you wouldn't run into normally. You get to witness to family members who are wondering how are you maintaining a sense of stability and sanity in the middle of your difficulty. It wouldn't have been that way. Your, your witness wouldn't have been as impacting without that trial. How is it that you're losing your job? How is it that all of a sudden you've lost your, your vehicle, your house, you've, your marriage is on the rocks, but the two of you are trying to pull it all together? How are you doing that? And it enhances, it builds up your witnessing. And God says, I allowed that to happen. He did it in John 11. In John chapter 11, Jesus gets the message. When he first gets the message, before he travels there to Bethany to meet with the sisters, he has a conversation with the disciples. Look it down in verse 6. When he heard, therefore, that Lazarus was sick, he stayed two more days in the same place. Then after those two days, he said to the disciples, let us go into Judea. The disciples said, Master, the last time we were in Judea, that is the, the uh, county, if you would, around Jerusalem, the last time we were there, they tried to kill you which is true. If you back up into chapter 9 and 10, Jesus was in Jerusalem. He was for the festival of lights. He preached a couple messages. They were so mad when he said, I am the father of Abraham. I am the God of Abraham. Before, basically he said, before Abraham was, I am. And they knew he was claiming deity. They pick up stones. They try to kill him. He got out of there. Now they're saying, if we go back to Jerusalem, we're close you know, to Bethany. We're in Jerusalem area. It's under the control of the Sadducees, the Pharisees down there who try to kill you. They've got a death sentence out for you. We're going to be in their territory. We, we don't dare go down. Jesus makes comment. He says in verse 9, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If any man walk in the day, he stumbles not because he sees the light. If any man walk in the night, he stumbles because there is no light. Let's go, guys. We're walking in the will of God. There's light in the will of God. It's going to be clear. If we're walking out of the will of God, we're in darkness. And so the, the, these things said he, and after that he said to them, Our friend Lazarus is asleep. I'm going to go that I may wake him out of the sleep. Their response, Oh, wait a minute. If he's medicated, if he's sleeping, he's doing good. Let's let him sleep. Let's not raise him because he's going to recover. Howbeit Jesus spake of his death, but they thought that he was speaking of taking rest and sleep. Jesus then says to the disciples plainly, Lazarus has died. Lazarus has died. It's been now two days. And we're going to take two days to get there. So four days after we get the news that he's really sick, I've delayed to. I'm going to get there on the fourth day after he's died. You know, and so he says in the next phrase is one of those Bible verses that is really, really strange. I am glad for your sakes that I wasn't there. Really? Jesus, you're glad you weren't here when somebody was dying? You raised other people from the dead. You healed all other kinds of diseases. Now you're glad you weren't there for one of your best friend's illness? What's going on? I was glad for your sakes that I was not there. And he goes on. To the intent that you may believe. Nevertheless, let's go. Well, now, wait a minute. These guys already believe on Jesus Christ. They are followers of His. Are they talking about coming to salvation, putting their trust in Christ, and calling upon Him to be their Savior? No. They're talking about much more than that. 
They're talking about the idea that these guys would be able to trust Jesus in the middle of the crises because they're going to have a whole bunch down the road. When he's gone, they're going to face a whole lot of crises. They're going to face persecution. They're going to face the death of one another. They're going to face the challenges of threats to their family for preaching the gospel. You need to believe. You need to see what I can do. You need to understand that I have a plan. You need to know that I am doing what's best. You need to trust me. I'm building your faith. I am using this trial in somebody else's life to build your faith. That's not all he did here. If you go a little bit further into the text, go down to verse 41. He goes to the tomb of Lazarus, and when he's there at the tomb of Lazarus, he said, in verse 40, he said to the Mary and Martha, said I not unto you that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? They took away the stone from the place where the dead was laid. Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you heard me. And I know that you hear me right now always. But because of the people which stand by, I said it, that they may believe that you have sent me. And when he thus had spoken, he cries with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he, Lazarus, that was dead, comes forth bound with the grave clothes. His face is still bound with a napkin. Jesus said, loose him. Let him go. Verse 45. Then many of the Jews which came to Mary and seen the things which Jesus did, what did they do? They believed, watch, watch the next two words. They believed on him. They put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. They got born again. They came to salvation. Jesus can use trials. He is a master. We'll talk more about that this evening, how he works that way. But let me show some two other thoughts. Number, life's crises. Another truism. They are only temporary. Life's crises are only temporary for the saved individuals, for those who are born again. Now, we understand that in this story, we understand fully that it was temporary, that Lazarus' death, and it was clearly a death. That's why he waited four days. Jewish tradition said that the spirit of the individual would hang around until the fourth day that they were dead. And so Jesus waits until the fourth day he comes, says, roll away the stone. In Jewish culture, they could not claim that this was a resuscitation where all of a sudden, you know, he was just put in the cold and he recovered. Under Jewish thinking, under Jewish custom at that time, they would say four days in the tomb. He's dead. In fact, when he says, roll away the stone, they say, Lord, we can't do that. There's a problem here. Not only is he four days dead and the spirit's gone, but he what? He stinks. He's already decaying. This isn't a wise thing to do, Jesus. It's clear that Lazarus is dead. It is clear beyond anybody's doubt or fanciful exaggeration that all of a sudden he just kind of, he swooned and came back. Not, not, not by Jewish culture and custom and not by what was going on at that point. It was clear and Jesus had talked about bringing Lazarus back one day and he said to the sister, you know, that I am the resurrection, the life and though he li he's dead, he's going to live the point is this, the point that Jesus wants to make, and he's referring to Lazarus' resuscitation that your brother's going to live, but he's also referring to his future resurrection. Either one, either way, here's the reality of life for you and me. It's this, whatever our trial, whatever the difficulty, they are only temporary if we're born again. They do not last into eternity. Now, if it's happening during the night when all of a sudden there's a severe illness and you're sitting there and you're waiting till the dawn, it feels like eternity throughout that night. We understand that. We know that. If your child is sick with a fever, you have to wait until the morning, it feels like you've just gone through two eternities by that child's bed. We understand that. You understand that. We know that about one another, that it is difficult. But what Jesus is trying to relay to his disciples is that they may grow, that they may believe 
so that they can see the glory of God is that whatever our trial, our trouble, our difficulty, even if it is taking us to a graveyard, whatever it is, it's temporary. It is temporary. That all the difficulties that we have, especially the big one, the, what, what Job calls the king of terrors, what is the, the most horrible difficulty that we, we struggle with. And we struggle so badly because here's the bottom line of it. It was never in God's plan and never in His creation that we die. Death is so unnatural from what God had put into the universe at the beginning. Death is purely a product of what? Sin. And so when we say, I'm so confused, yeah, you bet we would be. It wasn't God's original plan. This wasn't what He designed. Everything that has to do with death is so against the plan of God. The way He created things, sin has corrupted everything. It has made it into a tragedy that leaves us absolutely confused and, and in trouble and in confusion, and we don't understand it, so He gives us promises. He speaks about the resurrection of life, that we will live forever. Why? He wants us to understand that there is a day when there's no more pain. He wants us to understand there is a day when there's no more disease, when Hershey Medical Center will be put out of business. There's a day when there's not going to be war. We won't need policemen. There will be no more fear of terrorism. We'll never hear it again in the news. We'll never have to fear going to an airport, going to a, to a center again. There will only be peace and prosperity upon this earth. An earth that will cooperate with us. No more storms, no more lightning that could threaten our life. No more drownings, no more winter storms that can take somebody's life. It'll all be gone. And he's talking about in this text, and he's saying there's going to be a time where we won't even need translators. We'll all speak the same language. It'll be total universal harmony when he resurrects us and he brings the kingdom to this earth. There'll be a never-ending family reunion. Never again will we say goodbye. Never again will we go distances and travel that we say we can't communicate. It'll be in a, in a society, in a world, a renewed earth, if you would, that's going to be just wonderful and blessed and beyond all of our expectations. We go, we visit, we stand at the Arizona deserts, we see the, the Rocky Mountains, we stand out here, we look at the sunset and we say, it is so beautiful. Some of you travel down to the Bahamas and you go to those wonderful places in the middle of the winter. And you say, this is so gorgeous, this is so wonderful. And they are nice, but I remind you, they are still tainted by sin. As beautiful as they are, they are tainted by sin. There is going to be a, one, a world one day that's not tainted at all. Imagine the beauty. Imagine the forest then. Imagine the mountains then. Imagine the oceans then. When it is no sin curse, no taint, no pollution by sin. Imagine. A society where we are going to have unending activity, where we will expand, we will explore, we will invent, we will reach our maximum capacities, where we have never lost out on anything. Oh Lord, stay back, don't come right away, because I don't want to lose out on anything. How foolish. When we get into heaven, we'll be able to do whatever, whenever. As the Lord allows, it is going to be a time of eternity with perfect bodies, perfect society. And he reminds us, those of us who are believers, this life, though it be three score and ten, or maybe more or less, it is temporary. This isn't where real living is. Real living is in eternity. That's forever living. Oh, do we struggle with that? You better believe it. Do I understand it all? No, I don't. 
But I do know this, based on the word of God, based on his promises and his power, I understand this, that our God who is faithful, that in a hundred years from now, we're going to be in eternity. And we will be there for whatever time period you want to put. We're there for eternity. Eventually, at some time, it's going to come to this earth. We will be resurrected. Our bodies and spirits will be put back together. Oh, it could even start happening today. If he decided to come in the clouds and take up those who are dead and then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with him in glory, I guess we could put off the games tonight in order to go to heaven. I guess the Super Bowl won't be that important then once we get there. Nobody said amen on that one, okay. But we, this is temporary. Everything we have as believers, it's temporary. The pain, the problems, the bills, the, the, the agony of saying goodbye, it's temporary. It's temporary. That's all it is. It's just, it's for a short time. We, we, we rely upon Christ. We go closer, to, we grow closer to Him. And this Christ promises it's temporary. It's temporary. Aren't you glad it's temporary? Aren't you glad that this is only for a little while? That's why the songwriter says, it shall be worth it all when we see Jesus, when it's all done. Let me, let me remind you about something and close with this thought. Life's crises right now, they're small compared to what some of you will face. For what's ahead for those that Jesus calls the lost? Whatever trial you have here is like kindergarten. Whatever difficulty you have here is just so minor compared to what you're going to face in the future. The Bible describes there are two sets of people. There are the saved and there are the lost. There are the believers, the unbelievers. There are the those with life eternal, there are those who are under damnation. You see, in John chapter 11, Jesus talked about the resurrection. If you were to go back, he's talked about not, here he's talking about resurrection unto life. If you were to go back to John chapter 5, you would, talk, you would hear him, his other sermon about the resurrection, where he talked about the resurrection to damnation. And he talked about individuals who would experience not comfort and peace, but damnation. In John chapter 5, he talks about those who have done evil. They have rejected him. They have walked away from him. They have not had their sin forgiven. By the way, how many people do evil? All. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There is how many righteous? None. No, not one. None of us is so good, so holy that we can get into heaven. If no, no, no individual, no wonderful grandmother, no, no beautiful child, no, no great, you know, popular, you know, successful business person, no talented teen, no preacher, definitely no preachers are good enough to get into heaven. None. We all have sin. We've got a sin issue that has to be taken care of. And that's that sin issue is taken care of. We cannot enter into the kingdom of God. So Jesus comes and preaches a message. He says what's going to happen is that people have to take care of their sin issue. Those who have had their sins taken away, that is the penalty, that they've repented of it, they've, they've asked for forgiveness, and they've had the punishment, the penalty, the consequences of sin removed. He said they are going to be the righteous. In other words, we go to Jesus, ask him to take our sins, and give us instead 
sharing his righteousness. So when the Father looks at us, he doesn't see our, our darkness. He doesn't see our filthiness. He sees the righteousness of Christ that covers. It's like a wedding in the Old Testament. When the groom got married, the groom would take his wonderful garbs that he wore that were even more beautiful than his wife. He would take his robes off his shoulder. He would put them over his wife so that whoever looked at her at that wedding ceremony would see that he is claiming her, protecting her, providing for her. You're holding my suit so it doesn't wrinkle. Thank you. Um, so that everything in this is, this is now, everybody would look and see her covered with his covering that they belong to each other. He uses that as an illustration of Jesus covering us with his righteousness. It happens when we call upon him to be our Savior. It doesn't have anything to do with baptism. doesn't have anything to do with confirmation. doesn't have anything to do with preaching. It has nothing to do with giving money. It has solely to do with you repenting of your sin and asking Jesus to be your personal Savior. Not the Savior of the world, but your Savior to forgive you, realizing that He died for you, for your sins, for my sins. And each one of us must personally ask Christ to forgive us of our sins and give us a share in His righteousness. If you don't do that, there's a resurrection unto those who are remaining in evil, in their sin. That resurrection he talks about elsewhere. He calls it being resurrected and put into the lake of fire. That lake of fire he talks about is burning forever and ever. He says that if your name is not written in the Lamb's book of life, that comes by repenting of your sin, asking Jesus to give you a share in his righteousness. If your name's not in that book, you will be in this lake of fire. I, with, I'll preach on this next week more. The lake of fire is the worst thing in all of creation. It's the worst thing. Any trial we have now pales in comparison to the pain and the agony of the lake of fire. Any difficulty we have now pales, is so remote. It, it is a joy compared to what people will suffer in that lake of fire with their resurrected bodies, damned forever in pain and in horror because of their refusal to accept what Christ has done and saying, I can do it on my own. As a result, their names aren't written. So you come to this point and you say, okay, here's the big question. Is your name written in the Lamb's book of life? Have you come to the Lamb, Jesus, and asked Him to personally forgive you of your sins and to give you a share in His righteousness, forgive you and cleanse you from your sin so that He would become your Savior, your Lord, your God of your life? If you haven't done that, you need to do that. You need to do that. Or you could be facing the greatest eternal crises that anybody could face. Damnation. Because you've sinned. I've sinned. But unless we're forgiven, well, let me rephrase that. Except you be born again. You cannot see the kingdom of God. You cannot enter the kingdom of God. This makes it very clear. So in all these trials, here's your big question. Are you prepared for eternity with Christ? 